Cat Cho, author of the Gumiho Duology and Once Upon a Cape Rom. And I'm Clarabel Irotega, author of Ghost Squad and Witchling. And this is Write or Die. Yes, it is. Wee. Oof. So. I sound like a frog. You do not. Because I'm getting over cold. Oh, thank you. Well, I am f- head girl of Frog House. So that, it's appropriate, kind of. That is true. Yeah. Oh, you said that's true. It's canon now. It's in the book. <laughs> Cat chose head girl of Frog House. <laughs> I, just, I tricked you. That was my whole goal. That's why I got sick in the first place. What a long con. It worked out. <laughs> um, yeah. Oh, my gosh. I love. I mean, by the time this episode comes out, it'll the quiz will have be up and it, your book might be out already. Okay. But I still super love that quiz. I think it's so oh, fun. Thank you. Almost 10,000 people have taken it already. What? Yeah. That's isn't that wild? Insane. <laughs> so all so I'm expecting all 10,000 of those people to buy at least one, if not 20 copies. I really, really hope so. Can you imagine if they if all ten thousand of those people pre ordered? Mm, that would be. <laughs> <laughs> Don't say things like that. I'm sorry. Well, you know, you're the one who tells me to put things into the universe. I know, but that's so scary. Like okay, that's I'm so sorry. many people reading my book and talking about my book. Are you at the level right now where you're just freaking out that people are reading it? <sighs> yeah, I mean. They've been sending out a lot of copies of it, like, for a while. So, but, like, it feels like it's getting more intense. And I just, I feel like it snuck up on me again. Mm -hmm. Like, all of a sudden it's coming out in a month as of this recording. And it just feels like, wait, no. (laughs) Um, but... But I'm I'm excited about it. I'm just I'm nervous. Just like pre-launch jitters, I guess it's normal, right? No, I totally get it. I'm like way further out from release than you are, and I'm starting to feel those jitters um, for sure. So yeah. I get it. I get it. It's a thing. I'm just nervous because like, what when for Ghost Squad? I feel like I did so much because. I had a lot of lead time till the book came out, first of all. Second of all, it was my first book, so I felt like I needed to push. And it wasn't, like, the publisher didn't do as big of a push as they're doing for Witchlings for Ghost Squad. So I felt like I needed to, like, really be doing stuff all the time. Uh-huh. But for Witchlings, it's like, A, I'm exhausted because, like, mm-hmm. pandemic, like, everything, right? B, I feel like everyone else is exhausted, too. Mm-hmm. So... The level of, like, the way that I have always structured how I do promo and marketing is, like, do I want to see this? Do I personally think, would I personally think this is funny or or cool or interesting if it came across my feed? Yeah. And because I don't want to see as much stuff because I'm tired of, like, I feel, like, oversaturated with, like, online stuff and, like, I'm still coming down from, like, Zoom events. (laughs) Um (laughs) then I, I don't do as much because I feel like the the response is not as big as it used to be. Not for mm-hmm. just me, but just for everyone in general. I just feel like everyone is really tired. Um, and it's hard to, like, drum up that kind of enthusiasm for, like, nonstop, relentless, like, promo. So I sort of changed my approach. But now I feel like, did I do enough? Um, 
and I guess that's like probably something a lot of people feel right now like things have changed like the way we do things have changed so it there's like this anxiety that comes with that too but yeah no I was thinking also like that getting more attention from your publisher is a double-edged sword for sure because you feel a responsibility now to all the people on your team who are putting so much effort (sighs) into it. And you're like, if my book doesn't do well, my publicist will be sad. My marketer will be sad. Big time. Like, and it just stinks because the thing is book people are really amazing and cool. Like every, most everyone who works in book publishing is like, are like the coolest, funnest people. So once you do really get to know them, then you like really like them and so whenever I get really get to know like someone on my team, I'm always like, oh my God, I love you. And I want to do well on your behalf too now. And yeah, it's just, yeah, I get it. Absolutely. I mean, that that's part of it too. Like you definitely don't want to let people down. There's been a lot of that kind of anxiety for me. Like, I hope the book does well. I don't want to let everybody down. Everyone's counting on the book to do well. And I'm so scared. Um, but like I... I keep saying, like, I did what I could, but, like, I feel like I could have done more. And I know that that's not true, but I just am so hard on myself. (laughs) You are so hard on yourself. Sometimes I just want to come over there and shake you. I know. (laughs) But, I mean, I get – I understand why you have this mindset partly because I'm your friend and partly because I do think that, like, whenever a person of color does well – it's because we were raised well or because our community, like, it's because, like, you know, it's good for, like, the whole. But whenever we do bad, it's only our fault. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, my God. That's so true. It's super true, right? It's so true. I never even thought of that. But there oh, is, yeah. like, a lot of putting stuff on, like, your own shoulders. And I feel like mm-hmm. because we have to work so much harder to, like, even get our foot in the door, it's hard to break free of that mentality. It's really hard to sort of, like, break free of the mentality of, like, I still have to work so much harder than everybody else because if I don't take advantage of this opportunity, then I'm not going to get another one. And it's, like, when does that end? (laughs) Uh At what point did I do enough, right? I Um, don't know if it's going to ever end... And that's part partially why I'm trying to train myself to not think that I need to do everything also mm-hmm. because like there are authors who don't do anything online at all. Like mm-hmm. they repost stuff, right? Um, they don't have like these platforms or do any of these things and they still do well. Uh-huh. Um and I'm like, if they can do it, I can do it too. But it's, it's, cat is seriously such a struggle. It's such a struggle to believe in myself without micromanaging every single little thing that happens or is talked about around my book. Like letting the book sort of like, and the thing is, I really believe in Witchlings. I think it's a really good book. I think it's better than Ghost Squad. Um, mm-hmm. But I'm still like, but no one's going to believe it's good. I have to convince them. <laughs> Aww. I I feel like I feel like too it's like kind of a thing where you did Ghost Squad did really well. Mm. So I okay, first of all, I want to say before I say this observation mm. that I truly believe that each book should stand on its own even if it's a part of an author's greater canon of work mm. because each book is uniquely different. Yeah. 
Um, it should not be judged by an author's pre- past work, no matter how well or badly that book sold. But Agreed. that being said, I do understand that there is a certain pressure once you've reached an accolade that people are like, now that's your baseline. Like, now Got you're it. a New York Times bestseller, so is this going to be a New York Times bestseller? I think that's false. I think it's bad to do it to somebody. Oh, 100%. But I get, yeah. I get that people do it, and I understand the pressure it puts on people. And I can imagine that you feel that way um, because of the success of Ghost Squad. Um, so also, people, sorry if you hear baby sounds in the background. I'm taking care of my infant niece. Not sorry. Um, it, it's a blessing for them oh, to hear. Yeah. You've been blessed by these infant noises. <laughs> um, anyway, but like I, I, I'm so – I don't want you to fall in that rabbit hole as your friend yeah. because I do think every book is different. And no matter how well I think the book is going to do – like, I'm a third party in this in this situation. So, like, I can think all these great things are going to happen for your book and have faith in that. But, like, at the end of the day, you're the one who's putting in all the work and the blood, sweat, and tears for it. Yeah. It, I mean, that, that makes a lot of sense, too. And I also feel that pressure because it's, like, no matter how good the book does now, it's, like, oh, but if it doesn't hit the list, it's not as good as Ghost Squad. And it's, like... Mm-hmm that's not how things work like that's we know that that's not how things work but it's hard for other people like from the outside to not perceive it that way so it's 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 been interesting though it's been interesting sort of like trying to retrain my brain Mm -hmm. to sort of like be kinder to myself and be like hey you just like went through like a couple years of like a global pandemic so if you're not making as many like videos of wolves dancing in like an enchanted forest it's gonna be okay (laughs) 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 um so so yeah so i'm trying to like just to just be to to just be more understanding of like i did what i could with where i was at um instead of looking back and be like i could have done better but knowing that like i've been so busy with other stuff that's another thing like i'm writing other books as Uh this release is coming up and with Ghost Squad, I had so much time where it was just, like, only Ghost Squad promo, you know? So the the further you get in this game, the busier you get. That's just the way it is, huh? Mm-hmm. We say it all the time. It's actually really interesting because I was thinking about how a person's mindset when it comes to looking at publishing or even just their career really changes with each milestone you reach. And not so just true. thinking of it that way but thinking of how it changes our social groups yeah for sure I mean that is that's been one of the most difficult things I think for many people around me Mm -hmm. and for me to navigate because like everyone is at a different step now yeah everybody's at a different step and also there are like situations where like you knew people or were friends with people at the beginning of your career that like you're not friends with now which is kind of weird and awkward but like yeah things things can change like literally overnight Mm -hmm. for you in publishing so it's always kind of I don't know those kinds of relationships can be really complicated especially when there's like jealousy involved and Mm -hmm. um if there's like bad blood involved oh forget it it's so dramatic somebody make a reality tv show about publishing asap i know seriously i like like it you know what really stinks too it's not even the ones where like you had a friend falling out or you're not friends with someone anymore 
it's where like you are still friends with someone, but you realize you can't. Oh, <laughs> my, my niece hates this conversation. She had um, a lot to say about that. It's when you are still friends with someone, but you can't. You're not. You're not on the same level with oh, them yeah. as you used to be. Not for anything that you guys did, but like okay. I'll give, I'll give you a concrete example based on something I have seen happen before. It's like if you have a group and, you know, like a group of like four people and three of the people got agents and debuted and the fourth person is still, through no fault of their own, working on their manuscript to get agented, Yeah. right? And like maybe one of the other people now is a bestseller and another person has now moved into middle grade instead and like the other one like just debuted or whatever but this fourth person is still working to get agented right yeah i think that there's you there does become a shift and it's no one's fault in the group but that when everyone was unagented everyone was talking about querying right right the mm-hmm. whole conversation in that group chat was oh, have you heard of this agent? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I ordered research them. Let me send you my spreadsheet, blah, 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 right? This or that. I just saw this agent tweeted this. Like, everyone's on top of it. But now that three of the four people are agented, they're talking about completely different things. And that fourth person is like, wait, wait, wait. I still need that information. Like, mm-hmm. I still need those conversations. Those, like, I'm with you. We're in the trenches together. It sucks. Let's talk about it for hours and hours and hours. But that fourth person's not getting it anymore. And so now there's, like just a shift in the tone of the group. And I notice it happening a lot, a lot, a lot with groups that were together since the beginning, like have been friends for like years and years and years. And some people have moved to a different step. Um, and and I, I just think like it is really important to be aware that this does happen and that A, it's not your fault as long as you're being a good friend, right? Yeah. You're not being an, a jerk or an asshole in the group chat. Um, And be like, people do naturally grow apart, Mm -hmm. um, but if you were friends with each other for things other than publishing, you probably will stay friends. You just won't talk about publishing anymore. Yeah. And that's also fine. (laughs) Um, So like, I'm I'm just like, I mean, we have a huge friend group, right? We have like this one group of, of, um, that we're friends or friendly with where there's like 12 to 15 people mm-hmm. that like will, will regularly chat at any time. Um, and, and with that many people, you're naturally going to be at different phases. Like we, now we have like New York Times bestsellers in that group and some people who haven't queried yet and some people who, you know, are writing adult or writing, you know, graphic novels instead, right? Um, and I think like about it all the time because I want to make sure... I, at first, I wanted to make sure everyone was getting the most they could out of that group. And then mm-hmm. I got exhausted. Yeah. Because I was like, you can't do that. Instead, you have to give yourself the grace to change that what your relationship looks like with people and be okay with that. Mm. Yeah, it's it's so hard. It's so hard because, like, you... I know people who are in those kinds of friends groups that feel left out or like left behind rather because they're at a different step. And I just, there's no way to tell them like, don't feel that way because I get it. I would feel that way too. Do you know what I mean? Like, I feel like that's totally natural, 
But like, I think what you said about still being friends and it doesn't have to revolve around publishing. I think that is so important. Mm-hmm. I think your friend groups need to be well-rounded. I, I think that the people that you go to, like your everyday group chats has to be more than just about publishing stuff. And because you, sh- you have other stuff going on in your life, right? Like, like different people have like day jobs and like stuff happening mm-hmm. with family and like you can still congratulate people and like be happy for them when other things happen to them in their life. It's not like only publishing things that should be talked about and celebrated in these group chats. And I think that sometimes it's almost like, I know this isn't like a book related thing, but, and it's like, oh my God, it shouldn't have to be, you know, like you're still like our friend and we are, should all be happy for people. Like when we accomplish things, regardless of like, what it's in like if it's in our personal life it's our professional life our book career whatever it is um but it can be really hard it can be really hard to like sort of make sure everybody's okay all the time there's gonna be strife there (laughs) there's gonna be a little bit of like sort of um struggles when it comes to some people feeling left behind other people feeling you know maybe their things aren't being paid attention to whatever it may be but it can be it and publishing is so unpredictable publishing is so unpredictable that person who's still querying can like get a million dollar book deal and like blow up bigger yeah. than anybody else in the group and you just and then that presents like its own set of like challenges right like all of a sudden the dynamic changes but like i think you have to Put your friendship as human beings first and everything else with the, you know, your author careers, like third or fourth, like, like it should be important. You should be able to talk about things. Um, but I don't think that should be like the main focus because it, it could just be so complicated. It gets so complicated when, when things are like that, you know? Yeah. Um, and it would be lovely if everyone was reaching milestones at the same time, but like especially in a very big group, that's just not realistic, right? It really isn't. It's it's so hard. I think another thing to also sort of like for people who are in like bigger writer groups or writer groups where like people are at different steps, like make sure you check in with those friends. Like not in a condescending way, like like you know, be careful with your language, but like ask them how they're doing in general and like if you know that they're querying, be like, how are things going? Like, like update us. Like if you want to talk about it or, or how's this other thing that you were talking about the other day, like still make them feel involved and important and like, like a crucial part of your group and not just like, and give them reason to talk about like their life and like the good things that are happening to them that aren't book related. Cause they might be hesitant to do that. You know, they might feel like, oh, this is not really what this group is about, so I can't really bring that kind of stuff in here. But just, like, make it, like, normalize it, you know? Mm-hmm. I agree. I agree. And also just, like, you don't have to be able to give everyone advice all the time. Right. Like, about where they are in their career. It could just more be about, like, being a sounding stone. Like, if they need to talk. I think that this is the truth of any friendship, right? Like, just being there for your friend. Like, I'm friends with people who are in completely different industries. I have no idea what they fucking do. But, like, when they want to complain about their boss or when they want to celebrate, like, something cool, I'll be like, that's awesome. I'm here for you. Let's do it. I'll just – I'll ask for context probably because I'm like, I don't know what that means. But, like, I think it's it's fair to just be like, you know, 
be there for your for your friends. Um, and and I think another thing too, like that I've been thinking about. Oh gosh, I'm sorry, baby. This baby is not doesn't. She's like, no, we're always going to be the same kind of friend. <laughs> um, another thing that I also want to say is that, like, because this is something that, like, you and I talked about the other day, and I really liked our conversation, but I was like, oh, this should be on the podcast. <laughs> so I'm just, like, going to bring it up without finding an organic uh, way to do it. Um, and and something else that, that I really liked that we talked about was that um, you, it's okay to be envious of your friends, mm. like, where where they've like achieved my sister actually recently said that she read an article that said there's a difference between jealousy and envy right Mm -hmm. so they both mean that um someone has something that you want or has achieved something you want to achieve but jealousy includes resentment and envy is just being like i'm envious of what this person has in a neutral way you know like so i think that i think that like it is important to realize that it's okay to want what your friends want, like the million dollar deal or the award or the bestsellers list or the movie deal. It's totally fine to want that. Yeah. Um, And we've said it before on this podcast, like um, we got really good advice from the amazing Holly Black that like it shows you what you want. You should embrace that, Mm -hmm. work towards that. Um, I think that's really important. But one of the things that I was talking to my sister about was that like, I really personally like the idea that if I knew I had to, I could go to my friends and be like, I'm really jealous about this thing. And I know that we can, it'll be fine that I can say that and we'll always be fine. Um, Not that I have to say it every time, but knowing I can, right? Yeah. I like that. I mean, I told you I was jealous when you hit the New York Times list. I was like, damn it. I want that But that's something that you want for yourself anyway. Do you know what I mean? It's Mm -hmm. like, I think it's it's comforting to sort of like admit to yourself, like, it's not like my friend suddenly married this guy and I'm like, no, I'm in love with him. It's like, like, these are things that who doesn't want a million dollars? Like, of course, you're going to want that for yourself. Of course, you want to do the best that you can in your uh-huh. career. That's totally normal. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think it's like, a, it's it's important to like admit it to yourself and to sort of work through those feelings in a healthy way because it could very quickly become a slippery slope. Um, uh-huh. And I think that like one of the things that we talked about too is like the, the way that I approach things is like no matter what happens around me, I still have confidence in myself and my book. And the number one person who I'm fighting with about stuff is me. Yeah. <laughs> it's always me. It's always like, oh, you didn't do enough. Like maybe oh. if you stand Luna, this wouldn't have happened to you, Clarabelle. Um, but then, you know, it, it, it makes it easier. Like both, it's like, yeah, I need to not be as hard on myself, but it helps in that I'm not sort of like, having like angry thoughts towards my friends <laughs> just yeah. towards myself <laughs> yeah no I think that's really good way to, to think about it I mean not the one not the angry thoughts towards. yeah no no friends. that's not good um yeah <laughs> but but yeah I mean as as like we grow in this industry and also once you, like once you get past like that the first big big biggest hurdles which is getting your agent and getting your first book deal there's a lot of small mini steps that are like, and not everyone hits the same steps. And of course, not everyone hits them at the same time. Right. Or the same order. So like, it's just way too complicated. You should never try to, like, 
you should never try to like quote unquote keep up with liter- with anyone else because you won't and it'll be it'll be a, a failed race from the beginning and yeah. it'll be unhealthy so but I think it's nice to like understand these shifts and changes because so much of our our lives do unfortunately end up focused around publishing at certain points um, just because it's such a social world yeah um, so just a just a just some thoughts about how to exist more healthy, healthier. Yeah, healthier in this industry. Yeah, and with your friend groups, just be kind yeah. to one another and to yourselves. Don't yell at yourself like I do. Yeah, don't don't be like Clarabelle. No. Um, <laughs> um, okay. You can try to be like Clarabelle, but you'll never have um, as nice skin or hair, so just don't try. Hey, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> So excited for today's guest, we have Tracy Chi. Tracy Chi is a best-selling and award-winning author of books for young people, including the instant New York Times bestseller and Kirkus Prize finalist, The Reader, and Prince Honor Book, Walter Award honoree, and National Book Award finalist, We Are Not Free. Her newest, her newest book is A Thousand Steps Into Night, a Japanese-influenced young adult fantasy. When she isn't writing, she enjoys hiking, egg painting, gardening, and hosting game nights with family and friends. She lives in California with her fast dog. Hi. Tracy, welcome! Hi, thank you for having me. Of course, of course. I love that, your fast dog. What kind of dog do you have? She is a Black Lab Border Collie mix, but I'm sorry to say she's no longer fast. She's going to be 13 years old this year. She oh. just, she's fast in her mind. Oh, she's fast in her heart, yes. in her spirit. Oh. That's so cute. I love old dogs. My dog is four, 14. He's going to be 15 oh, at the end of this month. Poncho oh, yeah. is so old. Oh, it's not Poncho. even funny. The geriatric dog. He's so old, but he is like... He's not fast at all. He, he is still fast if he wants to be, but then he'll take a three-hour nap that, after any yeah. zoomies because he gets yeah. so tired. <laughs> That's yeah. fair. That's my dog will be, like, all into, like, being a puppy again. She'll be running around. She'll have that puppy energy and then soar for a week. Exactly. That's actually exactly how I also feel, so (laughs) I can relate. Um, Oh my goodness! Um, uh, Oh goodness! Okay, there is a baby here. There's a human baby here, Uh, not a dog. Her little little noises are amazing. No one's gonna get mad about them. Yeah, she has um, interesting opinions about book publishing, so we'll see if she voices them during the interesting, varied, and many. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, Uh, (laughs) anyway, uh, I I have a question about the egg painting part of your bio. Yes. What kind of egg painting is that? Well, um, I do this thing where I see something cool on the internet and then I think I could probably do that. And so like, I don't know, back in 2012 or something, it was like 10 years ago, I saw this video on a Ukrainian egg painting where they use this wax resist wax dye resist system where you draw on the egg with wax and then dye it the color you want. So usually a lighter color and then you draw on for where you want that color to be and then you dye a darker color. And so it gets progressively darker and darker. And at the very end, you wipe off all the wax. And so then the colors that you wanted to keep when you drew on the wax are there. 
if oh, that makes that's, sense. That's so <laughs> wild. No, 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 I totally envision it. I'm going to have to go. Do you have photos of this on your Instagram? Yeah, actually, uh, Epic Reads just released a writer's room video, and I show off a, a few of the eggs that I have painted. Ooh. So, yeah. Nice. Okay, so I'm going to have cool. to look that up. Um, I'm, I'm writing down Epic Reads egg video. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. That sounds like a notes app from 3 o'clock in the morning when you yeah. wake up. Like, I got to write this like down. Daddy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Okay, cool. So the, I just needed to know that before we got into the meat of this of this interview. <laughs> I will just pick up random crafts. I don't know. It's it's a nice way to get like my creative energy out. That's not uh, super high pressured. No, I think that's great. Well, I I don't know who I was talking to this about, but I'm just gonna assume it was Claire about because I talked to Claire about literally everything in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, where it was like it's nice to have like something creative that you're not making money off of mm-hmm. and that yeah. you're not being critiqued on yeah. <laughs> by the outside world just to kind of like get that creativity in your body out without any pressure. Yeah. And for me also like something that I can in no way turn into something to show off on social media. Yes. That also really helps me. Something that was just for me, um, which is yeah. why I picked up gardening as well, because gardening is so ugly most of the time, <laughs> but I'm not tempted to post about it. Oh my gosh. I love that. Yeah. I like, um, I started to macrame, um, last fall. Ooh. Um, and that's Nora loves my macrame. <laughs> my sister's baby's name. Um, and, uh, and my aunt, I gave it to my aunt for Christmas and she's like, this is great. You could sell it. And I was like, no, no don't say that made from this. <laughs> so adamant about it. And she was like scared because I was so intense about it. <laughs> People don't get it. How sick we are of like selling things. Like mm-hmm. I don't want to sell it. Just want to make it and make people happy. And that's it. Yeah. Um, okay. So Tracy, tell mm-hmm. us how you got started with your writing. We want to know all about your writing journey, how you got your agent, your first book deal, all of that. Well, let me take you all the way back to middle school. (laughs) (laughs) Which is when I feel like this journey started. Um, I had always been like a a really big reader and specifically sci-fi and fantasy have been my love since I can remember. But I didn't even consider that I might like writing until I was not reading and instead I was playing video games (laughs) and in middle school um Final Fantasy 7 came out on PlayStation and I became completely obsessed with it um it was this like super expansive story where you got to be in control of the characters and it like you felt so connected to them in a way that you didn't with reading which was much more passive compared to like playing and controlling an epic, you know, three CD video game. Um, And I was like, oh, I want to be a video game designer. Um, And so I looked around and I had no idea how to do that. (laughs) Um, It was like the late 90s. So there was just kind of no options for me to like take a coding class or, or learn how to do like animation. And so I was just like, you know what? I've got a a pen and paper here. So I will just start drawing pictures of my characters and making maps. And I will just write out the story of my very own video game. Um, And so I spent most of middle school, I think, working on this, what was basically a ripoff of Final Fantasy VII. Um, And then I had nothing to do with it. (laughs) Like I just, I had made it, 
And then I couldn't go anywhere with it. And I was like, you know what? I will just do the thing that I really like about this, which is writing the story. And so it was after that that I like got into fan fiction and I got into writing original fiction because I was so bored writing other people's stories that I wanted to make up my own. And so by the time I got to the end of high school, I was like, I want to be a writer and I only want to go to colleges that have creative writing programs. And so that's what I did. And then I got out of college and I was like, uh, what do I do with this degree? Oh, <laughs> I just, no. <laughs> I mean, I just, you know, the only writers that I knew were also teachers. Like, they all had other gigs. Like, there's no one who was just writing and publishing, and that was their life. And so I tried to be a teacher after that, and it was uh, difficult. I mean, my heart goes out to anyone who can hack it as a teacher because I could not, it was just, I mean, I loved working with the kids. They were so great. Um, but what they don't tell you when you are trying to become a teacher and in your teaching credential programs is that there is a lot of like bureaucratic garbage that you have to deal with that, that that's like not the, the reason you got into it. Um, and it was very, very creatively confining for me who had always been like this creative, like kind of punk rock spirit. Um, you wouldn't look, you wouldn't think it to look at me now. Um, that's, <laughs> that's always been kind of um, a little, I've got a little rebellious streak in me. And so like being in the public school system as a, as a cog in the machine was really, really difficult for me. Um, and it also kind of, um, pulled from the same creative well as writing. So I found that I couldn't write and teach at the same time. And I was like, you know what? Uh, I am going to stop this and give myself a shot at the thing that I really, really love and, and have always loved, um, which is writing. And so I quit and it was very scary. Um, I don't know that I would quit now, you know, knowing what I know about the the publishing industry. But back then I was just, I've noticed that there's kind of like this foolish and ambitious streak that keeps like popping up again and again in my journey. Like first foolish and ambitious to think that I could go to college for creative writing and that would be a thing. And then foolish and ambitious to think that I could quit my job and just kind of do it. Um, so like taking these kind of uh, ridiculous leaps is, is, a, is a, a common thread. So I gave myself a year. I was like, I'm going to take a year to try and write and publish a book. Uh, and then that turned into two years because writing a book takes a long time. Um, but during that time, I was thinking about what I had been writing in college. And it, and it tended to be, you know, very adult, literary, um, often about a white man. Mm. <laughs> and... This, this thing that my instructor said to me, um, Karen Yamashita at UC Santa Cruz, I went into her office one hour, office hours one time and she was like, why are you always writing about white boys? They mm -hmm. write enough about themselves. And I was like, at the time I was like, you don't know, I can, I've known white boys all my life. I know this very well, I can write about it. Um, uh, but then when, I, when it came down to it, that her voice, came back to me and I was like, you know what? I don't want to write about white boys. I want to write about the things that I fell in love with about books. And those tended to be, you know, books written for children, books for young adults. Mm -hmm. And they tended to be fantasy. And I was like, you know what? I'm not 
going to write a write about a white boy this time. I'm going to write about um, you know a, a character that I would have loved to have seen when I was growing up, and so that became the reader. And uh, I finished the first draft in about 18 months or so, and it was very long. And I was like, okay, this is too long. I'm going to revise it from 150,000 words down to 120,000 words, and that'll be good enough. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) And so I started querying, thinking like, I know it's a little bit long for what agents are looking for, but the writing will speak for itself. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And so I sent out, uh, you know, smallish batches of like 10 queries at a time. And I got to 20 queries or so out there and they were all form rejections pretty much across the board. And I was like, well, maybe that was a mistake. I also, um, Let's see, Adam Silvera and, and Jasmine Warga were running this this very brief giveaway on Twitter where they were like on a road trip together and they had volunteered. Like if you like tweeted at them, they would critique your query for you. And so I did and they critiqued my query and they were like, this sounds great, but yeah, it's long. And I was like, okay, fine. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I have to adhere to the rules that everyone else adheres to. <laughs> so I was like, okay. I'm going to, you know, take a step back and like try and get this to a hundred K or under because that's those, those guidelines are there for a reason. And so I spent another few months revising it down to 107. So a hundred and wait, a hundred, how do I say this? A hundred seven thousand words. And okay. um, I got it there by what just was coincidentally the time that Pitch Wars was starting. This was Pitch Wars 2014. And I was like, you know what? I could really use the advice of someone who has been through this. Um, I feel like, you know, I want to get it to a point where it's like professional and, and publishing ready. And so I entered Pitch Wars and I and I submitted to Renee Atia, who was who picked me as her mentee. And it was one of the best experiences of my life because she is just she's just such a great eye for story. And she has a really sharp sense of, of business as well. And so we got it down to 97. I got it under oh, 100,000 wow. words. <laughs> and so by the end of two months, we ended up with um, a handful of queer a handful of requests from pitch wars and then uh at the very end of that renee was like you know what i'm gonna send this to barbara i think barbara barbara powell her agent um now my agent uh would would really like this and and so she sent it to barbara barbara read it in less than 24 hours she read it in a night got back to me and allowed me to ask her questions for two hours. I don't know what I was thinking, uh, but I had found all of these different lists online of like questions you should ask your agent on the call. Oh my and God, two I, hours is so I long. all of them and I was like, I'm gonna ask every single one of these. And Barbara was so, so patient and like never once got snippy and like always made me, like she made me feel so comfortable asking her questions, like no matter how mundane and no matter how like out of left field they were, she was just, she, she just felt like she was happy to be there and like excited about my work. And, and I really, really, um, valued that I had gotten a few other, um, offers. And so I was like, 
I have a good feeling about Barbara. She makes me feel safe and like taken care of. And, and in addition, like I, I had known from Renee that Barbara is a shark um, and just, and just so, so smart. And I felt really comfortable going with her. So I signed with Barbara and then fairly quickly after that, I don't remember the exact timeline, but within, within a couple months we had signed with um, Stacy Barney at, she was at Putnam then um, with the reader trilogy and, Ooh, and off from there. Yeah. Yeah. Stacy. <laughs> A queen, right? I mean, I just, she is such a, a fierce editor, right? She's so smart and really challenged me to become a better writer. I loved working with Stacy. That's so cool. Do you know, it's so interesting. It's so sad, but also sort of like, it brings us all together. It's like almost every author whose book came out like around like in a certain window has like author of color has this like story of like yeah I only wrote white people uh-huh. yeah until yeah, sure. someone told me I could write people who look like me or I read a book by like this one author that I found and realized I could do it too it, it's something so many people have had to work through and it's mm-hmm. just it's it seems so like why would you why would you think that you had to write that but it was it's such a thing it's such a thing I feel like it's getting better now but like definitely for me like that's also what I did because it's what I read right so yeah um it's just so interesting that so many of the people we've had on this podcast have the same exact story yeah I mean I think it speaks to the the power of the way we tell stories and who we tell stories about. And if we think stories have to be this thing and we never see anything else, then we think, Oh, story has to be this way. And I think that that's related to the way that stories shape our reality. Like literally in our case, like my reality was that I could not write a character who looked like me until someone said, yeah, you can, and you should. Um, and I think, I think it's, I think it's getting better. At least I hope so, because they're just, there's so many more varieties of stories out there for people yeah. to to be exposed to and to think, oh, reality can be this way. I can be this way, which I think is is so wonderful. Yeah, yeah I do think it's getting better for sure. Um, so you got your agent. And then what was your submission process like for the reader? Oh, Barbara had me kind of clean up a, a few things in the manuscript that I sent her. And then... We went out fairly quickly after that. She thought it was ready. And we went out to an editor um, with a, hey, you could you could read this. Yeah, I mean, an exclusive. We gave this editor an exclusive for, for a limited amount of time. And that editor did not get back to us within that window. And we were like, we're going out to other people now. You missed your chance. Um, and so Stacy was one of those people um, because Stacy was Renee's editor as well. Um, and... Stacy read it, offered very quickly. She offered in a preempt. Um, nice. And so that, <laughs> yeah, that other editor, the original editor <laughs> did, did not get to, uh, get to um, even offer because Stacy just kind of snatched us out from under her. She knows quality. I'm not just saying that because she's my editor. <laughs> oh. It's actually really funny because um, when when my agent and I were talking about potential editors to send to, and she, I was like, did we put someone from Putnam on there? And she's like, no, why? And I was like, well, this editor, Stacey Barney, 
edit some of my favorite fantasy by Asian authors, aka you and Renee. And <laughs> I was like, please put her on the list if you if you think she'll fit. Um, and Beth was like, oh yeah, she's great. She's a great editor, and and popped her on the list. And then Stacy obviously bought my debut. Yeah. So in a roundabout way, I only wanted to submit to her because of you and Renee. So may, so you're the reason I'm an author. <laughs> that means you oh owe Tracy no money. <laughs> um, but like, I, I mean, I, I remember, I don't know if, if people give this advice still, but like, I remember, so I did that because someone was once like, if you love a book, then look to see who represents it and who edited it and put them on your potential list. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's why I did that. Yep. Smart, smart, smart. Yeah. <laughs> What would you do if the world's biggest K-pop idol asked you to prom? Elena Su and Robbie Choi used to be inseparable until he moved back to South Korea with his family. But before he left, he promised to come back and take Elena to prom. Seven years later, Robbie is part of the biggest K-pop group in the world, and Elena wouldn't be caught dead at prom, which makes it all the more surreal when Robbie shows up on her doorstep to keep that long-ago promise. And now Elena doesn't know what's worse, the hate she's getting from Robbie's fans or the fact that she thinks she's falling for him. From the author of the internationally best-selling Gumiho duology comes Once Upon a K-Prom, a hilarious and heartfelt rom-com that brings the glamour and drama of the K-pop world straight to high school. So so I think that, you know, many people know that you have written books that are very different from each other. Um, but you're like super duper good at writing all genres, which I actually um, need to give you a message from the writing community that that's not fair. Um, <sighs> and you calm down. Um, okay, thank you. But, <laughs> but how, so like how did that process come about? Because obviously um, the reader and, and, and the first trilogy that you wrote is a fantasy. Mm-hmm. And while I do think that there is some great literary elements to it, and you did some really cool things with formatting with that, it's a it's a straight up world building fantasy. Um, whereas We Are Not Free is a hard hitting historical look at at, at a, a huge event that happened in American history, um, told from freaking fourteen points of view. <laughs> um, so how did you go from your debut trilogy to then writing we are not free as your next book yeah this was another like one of those just very foolish and ambitious decisions um i was coming to the end of the reader trilogy and i knew i had to write something else and i had wanted to write this literary post-apocalyptic fantasy um kind of inspired by Mad Max Fury Road. And so I, I sent a proposal to Barbara and she was like, yeah, this is great. And it wasn't yet time to submit it uh, as, a, as part of our um, option material. And so I was like, you know what, I'm gonna write another one. And so I whipped up a proposal. Um, so a few chapters of a young adult historical um, about the Japanese American incarceration camps in World War II loosely inspired by some of my own family's experiences in those camps because my grandparents um, had been incarcerated when they they were teenagers um, 
my grandma was 13 and my grandpa was 16 at the time. And so I was like, I've, I've been wanting to write about it for a really long time. And I had finally started collecting interviews from my family and, and doing a bit more research on it. And so I sent that proposal to Barbara and she was like, this is the one we are going to do this one now. Uh, this is the book of your heart. So, so, and it's really timely and it, and it, yeah, it's classic. And so we're going to sell this one next. And I was like, okay, I guess, uh, thank you. Um, and so that's, that's the one we ended up going with. And, and I'm just, I'm so glad it felt, uh, like time, right? This was 2016, 2017. So the kind of the early years of the the Trump presidency. And it just like the xenophobia and the racism in this country just felt like it was skyrocketing so high. And so to be writing something about a time in American history where xenophobia and racism were skyrocketing um, felt really, really powerful. In addition to that um, elements of it being so personal to me and so personal to my family as well. And we decided to switch genres, and, and fortunately, uh, Kat Onder, then at a- HMH, now it's uh, now it's Clarion at HarperCollins, uh, really, really loved it and, and connected with it. Um, and so, that's the one that came next. And yeah, yeah, foolish and ambitious. I don't know. Uh, it, it just <laughs> I just make these leaps, and and, and I feel like we all have like that that creative spirit inside of us, right? That tells us like, this is the thing that you really love. This is the thing that you really believe in. This is the thing that you should be writing now and trying to to kind of winnow out that voice among all of the other like life noise and publishing noise and kind of the self-criticisms is, is really, really difficult. But having people on your team who can tell you like, listen to that voice um, is, is has been really, really important for, for me and my career. Yeah, that is, it is so important having that. Um, and I hate that you had those stories to pull from, but it's so great that you're able to write them and sort of like help younger people sort of know their history too. It's, it's, it's so super important. I mean, my biggest question, like obviously, so I got to read an early copy of this book which thank you so much for letting me do that. That was such an honor. <laughs> um, but I, I was reading it and first of all, like sobbing my eyes out because it's so, it's so powerfully written. But second of all, I was like, I cannot wait to see how many awards this book is going to win. Cause like, <laughs> look, right. And, and so how did it feel for you? Cause like, you know, it, like, it got so many amazing and deserved accolades, but like, how did that feel? Like just to have go through that process. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, it was, I, I feel like my publisher had a sense, like this could be on like the awards track and, you know, I could see them kind of positioning that positioning it that way. Um, and I knew that like fantasy which is what I really love to write and is kind of like my natural home um, is not usually on that awards track. Um, So I was like, okay, if I'm going to get a shiny metal sticker on my book, it's going to be this one. Um, And so I was, you know, I was hoping, but there's, who can say, you know, what books resonate with, with what readers or what judges at what time. So 
was not counting on it. I was also not paying attention to when the National Book Award long list came out. Like it was just not on my radar at all. And so I woke up uh, one morning and was browsing the internet and saw that We Are Not Free had made the long list for the National Book Award. And I burst into tears. I just, I mean, just, just to know that, you know, these stories, like my family's stories and their experiences had been seen and had been deemed valuable, you know, and worth with worth talking about and worth sharing with other people was, was incredible. And then, so I immediately called my mom and then again, burst into tears and she started crying on the phone too. And so that kind of, um, set us up for, the next, the next few things that would happen, which was uh, then the shortlist came out, and sometimes they will call you ahead of time to like tell you, but not this time. And so I knew that the shortlist was coming out, and I spent a completely sleepless night just like stressing about like, oh no, what if it makes this list? What if it doesn't? Oh, and like my brain would just not shut up the whole night. So when the shortlist came out. Um, I was numb. I was so exhausted. I could not even process that it had made like the final five. Um, and then, so, so that was, I mean, a wonderful experience tempered with like the fact that all of this was happening at the end of 2020. And so it was kind of the pandemic and we didn't have vaccines yet. And no one knew how safe it was to gather with other people. Um, and so there was that as well. And so I missed out on going to the National Book Award ceremony, which, you know, I'm, I was happy to, to celebrate on, on Zoom and like to cheer on Case and Calendar, who, who won that year because their book is amazing. Um, but also, I, then I immediately changed into pajamas and like binge watched some Netflix. You know? <laughs> and so like, it was just, like a weird thing to have like, it's so wonderful. I'm going to get so dressed up for zoom and then immediately like go eat ice cream on the couch. <laughs> it was just a weird kind of way to, to celebrate this thing. Um, and then in, what is it? January in the middle of January, I got a, an email from my publisher saying like, Oh, Hey, we would love to set up a marketing call for a thousand steps in tonight. And I was like, Oh, okay it's a little early because like at this point we knew a thousand steps in tonight wasn't coming out until March of this year. So it was more than a year ahead of time. I was like, that's weird. But also maybe they just want to get like a a really like a running start on the (laughs) plan for this book. And I was like, okay, um, can you send me a marketing plan so I can like come up with my list of questions? And they didn't. And I was like, okay, I guess, boo. Came up with, like, my my again as exhaustive a list of questions as I could. You remember I'm the the two hour questioner with Barbara, so <laughs> I had many and I came prepared um, to this meeting. And then I show up, and Barbara shows up, and the screen, the Zoom screen, is just filled with a bunch of people I don't know. And oh, she God. and I are looking around like, oh no, what is this? What? Is- <laughs> Who are these people? Are they gonna give us bad news? Is this the way they're gonna break something, break some terrible news to us? And then, um, 
they were introduced as the the judging committee for the Prince Award, and they said that we are not free was an honor book, and then I again burst into tears. Oh my <laughs> gosh, that is an elaborate like lie. What setup. the hell? Yeah, yeah. what a like what the hell? Can <laughs> your publisher do that to you? Oh man, it was. I mean, it was great, but uh, Barb and I hopped on a call afterwards, and we we're like, we had so many marketing questions. Yeah, right? You're like, wait, but also what about my marketing? <laughs> like at the yeah. end of it? <laughs> it was really, it was really just a wonderful surprise. Um, and then to to see it, you know, at the ALA Youth Media Awards was really, really cool. So, <sighs> yeah. That, that's amazing. I Is that like... <laughs> Is that normal or is that like they bamboozle authors like, hey, we're doing this thing and then they do another thing? Or was it just like a you thing that they had to surprise you? (laughs) They bamboozled a few authors because I was like, oh, do I get to know who anyone else is? And they were like, no. I was like, oh, "Oh, wow. Um, But then they were like, we're going to make another call tomorrow. And they were really excited about that. Um, But sometimes. Did it to everyone. Yeah, but sometimes they they call authors in like the middle of the night, right before the award ceremony, and I am very glad to not do that to me. I would much rather have you know been bamboozled by this uh, marketing call than being woken up in the middle of the night. Yeah, that's that's too intense. That's too intense. Well, I mean, I hate surprises. I I'm a person. I'm a very Type A personality who loves to be prepared for things. So. But this is a nice surprise. This is this is not a terrible surprise. Yeah, I I think it's really cool. It, it's just like I would have never expected them to do it that way. Um, yeah. So <laughs> it's pretty interesting. Um, so uh, for people who don't know what a thousand steps in tonight is all about, can you give us a quick rundown in your own words? Yeah, so A Thousand Steps Into Night um, is my return to fantasy after writing (laughs) realistic historical fiction. I was like, you know what? I need some magic in my life. Um, And so I wrote this book, which is about a very, very ordinary girl named Miyuko in this um, Japanese-influenced world um, where humans and spirits and gods kind of all live side by side. And uh, she is in this pretty oppressive patriarchal society and she has resigned herself to being you know pretty ordinary in an outcast kind of for the rest of her life until one day she is kissed by a demon and then oh. cursed to become a demon um and she gets cast out from her village and she goes on this whole journey to try and remove this curse um but as she goes on this kind of magical folklore road trip she begins to realize that there is some freedom in being a monster, right? She no longer has to adhere to what society has always expected of her. She can she can be more free. She can make her own choices. She can go places she was never allowed to go before. And she's like, oh boy, I would love to remain human and not turn into a bloodthirsty monster, but also, this is kind of nice. <laughs> so she has to decide um, if she wants to be human or 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 a demon. Oh Whoa, I love that. Oh my gosh, so, so much. much tension. It it reminds me of. It kind of reminds me of like Miyazaki movies in like yeah. me that because like, he writes such strong female characters. Like he always has a strong female character who goes on like a really intense journey. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And I kind of like got that vibe from that. But also like what commentary on like the fact that the patriarchy is so shitty that we would rather be ugly demons, literal demon. Literal demons to be free of them. <laughs> like <laughs> I mean, yeah. Right. This the inspiration for this book kind of came out of those two places. Like these it was inspired by these Japanese folktales. Japanese children's tales that I had read growing up as a kid. Um, and of course, Studio Ghibli movies, which I've been watching since forever when I was a little kid. My Neighbor Totoro and Kiki's Delivery Service were like the movies that I watched when I was homesick from school. And so I know them very, very well um, and love them so dearly. But then also, right, I grew up in America and have been a cisgender woman in America for my entire life. And I feel like I got something to say about that. <laughs> and, so, <laughs> and so, you know, Miyuko and her world kind of came out of those two places where, yeah, if you're going to speak your mind or if you're going to, you know, choose not to have children or if you're going to say, yeah, I believe in equality between men and women and, and, and all genders, people are going to, you know, some people react as if you are monstrous because of that, as if you um, need to be kind of put in your place because of that and so yeah those things are, are very real in our society as well yeah for sure like just the demonization of the of the word feminist as mm -hmm. if like you're an awful person for believing all genders deserve equal rights like because at the end of the day that's really what it is it's like yeah I, it's just like so ridiculous like what we have to contend with is marginalized people being like, no, I just want to be seen as like a human being. And they're like, how dare you? Yeah. Monster. Yeah, no, totally. Um, now is the time where we talk about what a big nerd you are. And you <laughs> okay. invented a whole entire language for this. Book. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's a language enough to fake it through the book. Like I, there's, you can speak it. Like it, it's not like a Klingon or, or an Elvish. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, what, why did you decide to like go so intensely into like inventing, like, I mean, like most writers do not, you know, invent like other than like, you know, um, who is it? J.R.R. Tolkien or whatever. Mm -hmm. who was a linguist himself, so he was also a huge nerd. Um, what made you decide to do that? Um, <laughs> boy, I don't know. Like, I, I'm always, I've always loved words, you know, and languages, and I, I was really taken by the idea of, like, there is a, a completely made-up language, and also, what if the language itself was magical? Drop that idea. That did not go anywhere. <laughs> um, but I, I still kind of loved that idea. And then also, this is, like, a, it's a second-world fantasy. So even though it's Japanese-inspired, it is not Japan. These are, these are not actual Japanese creatures. These are not actual Japanese myths or gods. And so to kind of even, even make that differentiation a little bit more clear and, and a little bit wider I was like I'm not going to use Japanese language in here either not even for food or clothing like you'll notice they, they don't mention like tabi socks and they don't uh, use uh, hashi when they eat they just I, I I use English words for for kind of these things um and so to have a completely made up language that sounds you know you know vaguely Japanese inspired um mm. I, I hoped 
would help kind of create that distinction. Like this is inspired by Japan. This is not Japan. Um, and then also it was very fun, right? It's it just such a fun process. I worked with um, my friend and linguistics major, um, Ariel Mackin, who helped me. She was, she was a huge help in being like, <laughs> okay, if this is a grammar goes this way and, and if we need these syllables and we need this meaning and something about morphemes. And I was like, okay, <laughs> thank you. I don't know. I don't know these fancy words. Um, <laughs> and, and so having her to help me with it was, was really invaluable. And then it just became like a real joy to be like, okay, what does Miyuko's name mean? Or what does, um, she has a friend named Geki and what does his name mean? And how does that like reflect on his character? He, um, Geki means silly bird um, in the language and he is a magpie spirit. So it's like a very apt name for him. And just like having kind of these extra layers of meaning was really, really enjoyable. And then also I feel like added this element that helped me with the voice of it because I tried to write it in this kind of tongue in cheek storyteller, like old school storyteller voice. And to have a narrator who could like speak in that voice and then also comment in the form of footnotes on like this language, like added another layer, you know, from the reader, I love like a bunch of textual complications and also uh -huh. you're not free. So I was like, I'm going to add footnotes for how to pronounce <laughs> things. And this is their etymology. And this is like the folklore that it's attached to. Um, so for me, it just, just added another fun element and, and way to bring people into the story. That's so cool. And and I love it, though, how how you kind of like just go all in with like these things. I, it gets really frustrating because like when you do a lot of research and then, you know, most of it's not going to get on the page. You're like, but I did it and I want the credit because I did all this research. <laughs> and you're like, well, I'll just put a footnote in it then. And I'm like, what? The the boldness, the like, the like, I'm going to put in, I'm going to show you like all of this work that I did. <laughs> and I don't care about format thing. I love it. <laughs> Behold how big of a nerd I am. Yeah. I love it. I think I think it's really cool. Like a Tracy Chi novel is so unique because you play with so many elements of storytelling, including format, including footnotes, including like didn't you like have pages that got like darker and darker? Yeah, in in the storyteller. I did. Yeah. <laughs> I was so lucky that my publisher let me do it. Yeah. yeah. Like just such cool like you are so involved in like every piece of how the story is received by the reader. And I think that that's such cool artistry um, that really most readers can only get in a Tracy G book. Oh, thank you. I just yeah. I find that aspect of storytelling so fascinating, like, how can I use every single tool at my disposal? Like, you're not just, you know, in, ingesting, like, the content of the words. It's also about the way that they're laid out on the page, and it's also about mm -hmm. the conceit of who the narrator is and how they got this manuscript and who, why they're telling the story and who they're telling it to. And, yeah, I, I mean, I just, I love all of that, and I love trying to trying to capitalize on it, you know, and trying to, to make use of it because I think that's so challenging and also so fun. Definitely. Okay, Tracy, so everyone who comes on Ride or Die tells us their most embarrassing publishing-related story, something they wish they'd know before they started. You can do either or. You can do both. It's up to you. Okay, so back in 2016, which is my debut year, this is when The Reader came out, um, it was nominated for the Kirkus Prize, 
And they invited me to be part of this Kirkus Prize panel of, I mean, and the Kirkus Prize, like, it's not just children's literature. It's also, like, nonfiction and, like, adult literary fiction. And so there was, I went to the, um, oh, shoot, I'm forgetting the name. We went to the Texas Book Festival. Um, and I was on this panel with, like, very heavy hitting like journalists and and uh, like fancy literary authors and there was me with my book about like magic words and pirates <laughs> I thought oh dear I don't know I don't know about this um I went okay I guess but also uh, nominated for for the Kirkus Prize that year was Meg Medina and she was on this panel with me and she was so 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 wonderful um boy I wish I could tell the story better <laughs> and so um, my mom was there with me. My mom was convinced that I would win. I was like, oh, mommy, thank you. Uh, but no. Um, so she was like, I want to, I want an invite. And so she was there in the audience during this panel while I made a fool of myself out of award-winning, like Pulitzer Prize <laughs> oh, writers. <laughs> Amazing. And then, um, you know, we got out of the panel and I was backstage and I was passing someone who was dressed like my mom, like had like the same clothing as my mother, a similar haircut to my mother. <laughs> oh no, um, oh no, I'm so scared. And like, I was like, oh, hey mommy. I like, you know, hugged her. Um, it was not my mommy, it was Meg Medina. Uh, she, was, <laughs> she was really cool. I was like, oh no, you're not my mama. Oh dear. Uh, but she was really, really cool about it. Um, uh, and so, yeah, I uh, definitely, was touched Meg Medina in an overly familiar way and called her mommy. And I feel like that's one of the most embarrassing things that I have done in publishing so far. Oh, but then she saw my mom and was like, this is a compliment. So thank you. And I was like, ah, my mommy is pretty. Thank you. <laughs> that is incredible. I love that so much. I, I love it. It's just, oh goodness. But I'm glad yeah. she was nice about it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was so great. Yeah, that whole experience was, like, really awkward because beforehand, like, there, we had been, like, collected in a green room, and I was regaling them with how I wanted to write a riddle as good as, like, how is a raven, like, a writing desk? And they just stared at me, like, okay, how how is a raven, like, a writing desk? And I was like, what, what, what this? And they, were, and they were like, okay, uh-huh. Oh, no. And I was like, well. Here. not not my children audience I guess <laughs> they're just boring yeah tell yeah just just say you're boring <laughs> writers for off. writers for adults have a have a different relationship to each other than I think writers for children do that I mean I that's fair like you can't know every single literary reference like it that would be impossible but at least, like, pretend, like, oh, this is interesting, <laughs> like, or, or not, nope. or don't make, like, a dour face. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I, I feel like, I feel like so many of um, people who come on here and their most embarrassing stories always involve a more established author. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's just, it's just a rite of passage at this point. I've decided to, like, realize that when you become a published author, you're amongst some of your, like, heroes and people that you fan over. Yeah. It's just how it is. 
one of these days we will be the person in the story like some other writer will be so embarrassed by something that they did to us or around us I think someone's the most embarrassing story involved Clarabel already. <gasps> yeah, it was. I think it was Ayana's. Maybe. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It was Ayana's. That's true. <laughs> I Ayana. love embarrassing people on purpose, though. So like, that's like my favorite thing in the world. Yeah, like it's not. You're not special anymore, Clarabel, for embarrassing people because you do it on purpose. Like, yeah, I sure do. <laughs> oh um. Anyway, JC, thank you so much for being on the podcast. This was so awesome. Thank you. What a great conversation. Oh, thank you. you. You're amazing. And before the interview started, I was telling Kat, Tracy's so nice. And you really are. Like, I feel like you always remember when you're a new writer, like the writers that you meet that are like kind to you. And you were really nice when we met. And I really appreciate that. I can't believe you remember that. Of course. That so long ago. Of oh course I remember. <laughs> yeah, you I, you definitely make a good impression, Tracy, because I also remember the first time I met you and, like, just just feeling immediately comfortable around you. I think that's yeah. the biggest thing. Is that, like, people can be nice, but you make people comfortable around you, and mm-hmm. that helps when you're a newbie and you're, like, super scared of literally everyone. <laughs> Oh, baby. Oh. <laughs> oh, thank you. I mean, people were kind to me. I think about, you know, Renee and, and people who welcomed me into the writing community and just to, why not be kind and why not be respectful and welcoming to people um, no matter what kind of where they're at on their journey. It just, it feels like such an easy thing to do and, and something that makes, you know, a really big impression. So. We agree. Yeah. (laughs) And that's really good advice for anyone to hear. Uh, Tracy, do you want to let everyone know where they can follow you on the internet? I am on the internet at my website is tracyg.com. T-R-A-C-I-C-H-E-E.com. I'm also Tracy G on Twitter, but I am Tracy G author on Instagram and Facebook. Yay. And everybody go buy 20 prerequisite copies of A Thousand Steps in Tonight or <laughs> the podcast will not reach your phone anymore. We, You know how it works. Yep. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Thank you both. This is wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much. Have a great rest of your night. Thanks for listening to Write or Die. Be sure to check out Wicked Fox by Kat Cho. And Ghost Squad by Clarabel A. Ortega. And while you're at it, make sure to subscribe to us on iTunes and leave us a review. See you next time, wordies. And don't forget to spread the word.